0: Let us celebrate with joy in the presence of our Lord and King. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and the confusion stops here. The fourth Sunday of Advent, <clears throat> Advent is coming up this Sunday. It's traditionally called Stir Up Sunday after the opening words of the Collect: "Stir up Thy might, we beseech Thee, O Lord, and come and succour us with great power, that by the help of Thy grace." The indulgence of thy mercy may accelerate what our sins impede. Fourth Sunday of Advent, of course, the first day of the last week of Advent, and, uh, of course, Christmas be celebrated uh, a week from this Friday. Now, on Stirrup Sunday in England, there's a tradition for the family to gather together in the kitchen to begin in preparations for the annual Christmas Pudding. And so mother shows the children how to mix the ingredients, and everybody takes a turn stirring the pot. Now, the tradition is that each person who takes a turn uh, gets to make a special wish for the coming year. Now, practically speaking, stirring a pudding takes a long time, <clears throat> and it's difficult, and more hands make less work, as the old saying goes, hence the magical incentive, I suspect. Uh, another tradition when stirring the pudding is to stir the mixture from east to west, in honor of the three wise men who visited the baby Jesus, and in some households uh, they would put a, a silver coin or coins into the pudding mix, like like a prize, you know kind of like the king's cake that some people make at epiphany or uh, at Mardi Gras in New Orleans but liturgically speaking, the fourth Sunday of Advent points beyond Christmas to the second coming of Christ to remind us to avoid judging our neighbors but to encourage us to judge ourselves and to cleanse our hearts for the reception of Jesus as our Savior so that we can be prepared when he comes again as judge. So the uh, first reading for the extraordinary form of the Mass this coming fourth Sunday of Advent is taken from the uh, Epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Brethren, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and the dispensers of the mysteries of God. Here now it is... required among the dispensers that a man be found faithful. But to me it is a very small thing to be judged by you or by man's day. But neither do I judge my own self. For I am not conscious to myself of anything, yet I am not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge not before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts." and then shall every man have praise from God. So what have we here? First, how priests should be regarded by the faithful. The Church wishes to inspire us with respect and veneration towards our priests who are the ministers of Christ and the dispensers of the mysteries of God and the advocates of religion. St. Paul says uh, elsewhere in Scripture, let the priests that rule well be esteemed worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. That's from First Timothy five seventeen. And of course our Lord Himself told the apostles, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that uh, rejects you, rejects me, and he that rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So respect for the successors of the apostles, our bishops and our priests, is no small matter. Now, on the other hand, we also see that priests may not minister the holy sacraments as they please, for they are stewards of Jesus Christ, acting in his name. He says it's required among the dispensers, they be found faithful. So they must observe his will, which is that they should administer the sacraments for the glory of God and the salvation of the faithful. They are not permitted to give that which is holy unto dogs, as our Lord said in Matthew 8. So they cannot therefore give absolution or holy communion to those they know to be unfit, for fear that by so doing that they would thereby condemn themselves. And that's priestly food for thought when the pro-abortion politician presents himself or herself for communion. Now, also, we see that priests should consider it a small matter to be judged by men, because the world generally judges by appearances and not by reality. St. Paul says, if I pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ in uh, Galatians 1. And not only priests, but the faithful also. We need to seek to please God more than men. It's just plain foolish to follow all of the silly and scandalous fads and fashions, whether it be in dress or manners or entertainment. And, and how foolish to neglect the holy exercises of religion and dangerous to the well-being of the soul to constantly be wondering, you know, you go on social media, oh, what will people say? What will the world say? Rather than what will my God and Savior say if I do this or that? And finally, St. Paul says, but neither do I judge my own self. Because even St. Paul can't know how God would judge him. For no man knoweth, uh, <clears throat> for man knoweth not whether he be worthy of love or hatred, it says in Ecclesiastes 9.1. Therefore, St. Paul says, I am not conscious to myself of anything, yet I am not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. We should, therefore, examine our conscience thoroughly. But if we find nothing uh, in us that displeases God, we can't on that account think ourselves better than anybody else, because our picture of ourselves might look quite different to what we are in truth before God. You know, how many uh, who now think themselves innocent and holy will appear on the day of judgment, stripped of their pretensions, and the most secret, you know, innermost workings of their hearts be revealed by God? I think of the world, uh, our Lord's words in Matthew 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out devils in thy name and done many miracles in thy name? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me you that worketh iniquity. I mean, this should convince us not to judge before the time, either ourselves or others, because we know even less uh, of the, about their hearts than we do of our own. Let us, as St. Paul says uh, in his epistles to the Philippians, uh, let us therefore work out our salvation with fear and t- trembling. And then we have the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke from Luke 3, verses 1 through 6. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and Philip his brother Tetrarch of Iteria, and the country of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Al- Ab- Ab- <laughs> Abilene, under the high priest Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord was made unto John the son of Zachary in the desert. And he came into all the country about the Jordan, preaching the baptism of penance for the remission of sins, as it was written in the book of the sayings of Isaiah, the prophet. But a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways plain, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So when you look at this, you wonder, why is it that the time in which St. John the Baptist began to preach described in such minute detail. Well, it's because in that happy year, the prophecy of Jacob was fulfilled, and the scepter being taken from Judah, the long-expected Savior, showed himself to the world, was baptized by John the Baptist, declared by his heavenly Father to be his beloved son, whom we should hear. And apart from the gospel, Pontius Pilate and Annas and Caiaphas and the rest would be mere footnotes to history. But so that this special moment in time should never be forgotten, and I should say contrary to his usual custom, John the Evangelist describes the time very particularly, and he mentions the names of both the spiritual and the temporal rulers, specifically to show that the coming of the Messiahs didn't happen, you know, once upon a time, or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but at a specific time and place on this earth, amongst real historical people whose names he knew because he was their contemporary. As he says in, in John twenty-one twenty-four. It is this disciple who testifies to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. And St. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. So on this final Sunday of Advent, then, we're reminded to make sure that the Lord's path is well prepared in our own hearts and to ask him to assist us to do what we can't do by ourselves, namely to to fill up the valley of our own hearts with his grace and to to straighten out our crooked and and weakened will until it conforms to his, to ask for the grace to soften our our rough and unruly mind and bring low whatever is in us that might impede his way so that he can come to us without hindrance and possess our hearts and reign in us forever. Amen. Now, as you've uh, no doubt heard by now, Pope Francis has declared, the new liturgical year, the ecclesiastical year, is the year of St. Joseph, which began on 8 December, which was the 150th anniversary of Pope Blessed Pius IX's declaration of St. Joseph as the universal patron of the Catholic Church. And of course, December 8 is also the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. So Pope Francis has established this year as one, and I'm quoting now, in which every one of the faithful, following the example of St. Joseph, can daily strengthen their life of faith in the fulfillment of God's will. All the faithful will thus have the opportunity to commit themselves with prayers and good works to obtain, with the help of St. Joseph, uh, head of the Celestial Family of Nazareth, comfort and relief from the serious human and social tribulations that today grip the contemporary world." Unquote. So there's a, a number of ways uh, this year to earn a plenary indulgence during this year of St. Joseph. And as we prepare to celebrate the Nativity of our Lord and uh, and what happens beyond, we're going to take a look at St. Joseph in Scripture and at tr- tradition, beginning with the anxiety of St. Joseph, which we're going to talk about when we get back. What is the anxiety of St. Joseph? Well, we'll talk about that and lots more concerning the universal patron of the Church, when we return right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold, and you are listening to No Nonsense Catholic here on VMPR. Great to have you along with us. Lots and lots to get through before we're done. So please stick with us. We will be right back after these messages with lots more No Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back, No-Nonsense Catholic. Next week is the final week of Advent, and as we busy ourselves preparing for Christmas, we recall that there was a lot of preparation to be made for the first Christmas by Mary and Joseph. Especially they had to prepare by saying yes to God's plan for the Incarnation and the Nativity. And Scripture suggests that the yes of St. Joseph was particularly difficult. The Bible says the Virgin Mary was espoused to a man named Joseph, Now, espoused is an archaic word, so modern translations typically say engaged or betrothed. But espousal is really something more than that. We know in most societies, marriage is both a civil or legal as well as a religious event. So back in those days, Jewish couples were espoused up to a year before the actual marriage ceremony. And that makes sense when you figure what a big event marriage is, you know, and the need to allow time for the announcement to be made and the invitations to be sent and all of the necessary preparations and to allow for travel times and so forth. This is the ancient world we're talking about. Hence the espousal or the, the contractual or legal aspect of the union was accomplished before all of the extensive and expensive preparations were made. So in other words, you made the legal commitment before you went to all that trouble. And to undo the espousal meant you had to get a divorce because you were legally married. So you'll note that Joseph is already referred to as Mary's husband. So when the couple was espoused, they were legally united, but you didn't consummate the union until after the religious ceremony. And only after the marriage ceremony did the couple come to live together. So sometime before their marriage ceremony, but after their espousal, Joseph learned that Mary was with child. Hence, the Anxiety of Saint Joseph. And I, I take that title from one of Jean Jacques Tissot's classical uh, Bible illustrations. And he's done a, a wonderful picture of Saint Joseph, and he's kind of leaning on his workbench in the carpenter shop, head in hand, pensively staring into the middle distance as though wondering what on earth to do next. And it's common for biblical commentators and preachers. To ruminate on the suffering, poor St. Joseph must have endured at this rather unwelcome news. But what does the scripture actually say? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is Matthew 1, 18 through 25. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and, and called he called his name Jesus. He knew her not. In other words, they didn't sleep together before Jesus was born. And that, by the way, does not suggest that they slept together, together after he was born, just that the baby was definitely not Joseph's, and that Mary remained a virgin, even though she brought forth a son. Now the scripture says, says she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, or of the Holy Spirit, or the Dewey says, of the Holy Ghost. Now, these last words are often taken as an editorial comment, you know, uh, for the sake of the reader. But it could also mean that St. Joseph had already learned that the pregnancy was a miracle. Not just that Mary was with child, but was with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, the name of this program is No Nonsense Catholic, so which reading makes the most sense? Let's take a closer look at the text, and then we'll uh, consult the opinions of those who are more holy and learned than us. First, St. Joseph is described as a just man, or some translations say a righteous man. And what does that mean, other than he scrupulously kept the Mosaic law? But under Old Testament law, according to Leviticus 20, uh, verse 10 and Deuteronomy 22:22, an adulterous woman should be put to death. Now, we know that under Roman occupation, the Jews were forbidden to exercise capital punishment, but a just man would certainly demand an adulterous wife to uh, pay a heavy penalty. But the scripture says he did not want to expose her to shame, and so decided to divorce her quietly. Again, being espoused rather than merely engaged, the only way to break the marriage contract was by death or divorce. So how how to understand this? Catholic tradition offers three main interpretations to explain why St. Joseph resolved to end their espousal in this way. The first is called the suspicion theory. So some hold that when Joseph discovered Mary's pregnancy, he suspected her of adultery, which is pretty reasonable suspicion under the circumstances, and decided to divorce her, not under the conditions of Leviticus 20 or Deuteronomy 22, but under the conditions, um, you know, not not under the conditions of adultery, adultery, but merely under the conditions of indecency that are found in Deuteronomy 24. So until the angel then informs him in a dream about the miraculous nature of our Lord's conception. So Joseph then is a just man because he shuns immorality and directs his actions by the law of God, and that was the opinion of St. John Chrysostom and St. Augustine. Now number two, you have the perplexity theory. And this position holds that Joseph found the situation of Mary's pregnancy, inexplicable. And divorce seemed the only option, but he wanted to do it quietly because he couldn't bring himself to believe that Mary had really been unfaithful. He's a just man, therefore, because he lives by the law of God, but judges Mary's situation with the utmost charity. And this was the opinion of another than St. Jerome, translator of the Latin Vulgate. <clears throat> and then the third theory, and in my personal opinion, the most credible. Credible is the reverence theory, and and most credible in my uh, estimation because it accords best with the plain sense of the text. That Joseph knew from the start that Mary was with child of the Holy Spirit. So faced with this, Joseph then considered himself to be unworthy. To be so intimately involved with the Lord's work, and his decision to quietly separate from Mary was a matter of discretion. He's keeping the secret of the mystery of her pregnancy. So when the angel appears to him in a dream, the angel confirms what Joseph already knows, but urges him to set aside his pious fear. Don't be afraid of this vocation to be the legal father of the Messiah. Right? The angel's message, therefore, is not primarily the child is of the Holy Spirit, but rather be not afraid. So Joseph is a just man because of his deep humility and his reverence, for the miraculous works of God and his obedience. Now, that opinion is one that I happen to share with St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And you knew we wouldn't get through the hour without mentioning St. Bernard. And that's pretty good company. And it's also uh, evidence that this isn't some kind of modern invention, right? This just doesn't come from Scott Hahn and Curtis Mitch in the Ignatius Study Bible. But it's a matter of Catholic tradition. So the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to ask her to be the mother of Jesus. And she says, yes, behold, the handmaid of the Lord. And Joseph also received a visit from an angel asking him to agree to God's plan. And the gospel says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Just as Mary said, I'm the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Joseph did likewise when he obeyed the angel. Elizabeth said of Mary, blessed is she who uh, believed what was spoken to her by the Lord. And the same could be said of Joseph and something else that emerges here is is a consideration of the consequences of a simple yes or no of just one couple of course at the beginning of the Old Testament we see how the actions of one couple namely Adam and Eve affected everybody who came after them by depriving us of the gift of the original justice before God but then at the beginning of the New Testament we see the absolute world-changing consequences of the actions of another couple, Mary and Joseph, in restoring the gift of sanctifying grace to the children of the church. And every time you say yes or no to God, you too are affecting many others, because our actions go forth like the ripples of of a pebble thrown in a pond. You look at Matthew 19, uh, just 12 verses comprising a little over 250 words. Jesus lays out the unchanging principles of marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman, the Christian prohibition against divorce and remarriage. He raises marriage to the level of a sacrament, holy matrimony. And he also encourages those who are called to embrace celibacy as a spiritually superior state. So from our Savior's own lips, we learned that both marriage and perpetual virginity are two signs of the love of God for us. And we see both of these united in that first couple of the New Testament, Mary and Joseph. Joseph, of course, the very model of chastity. And tradition tells us that Mary was vowed to God in virginity. And as such, she served in the temple literally as a handmaid of the Lord. Pope St. John Paul II refers to this in his exhortation about St. Joseph, um, Redemptoris Custos, a guardian of the Redeemer. Good reading for this year of St. Joseph, by the way. But how could Mary combine a vow of perpetual virginity with marriage? Well, St. John Paul says they were combined through the virginal conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And of course, even today, uh, Catholic clergy and religious, right, the priests and nuns and monks are still vowed to celibacy. But this is something that, that the world and the worldly minded find really difficult to understand, almost inexplicable. You know, sexual sin is so glamorized in our popular culture that people have come to accept it as normal. And the chastity of Joseph and Mary is a challenge to our times. A time when the sanctity of marriage, even the very nature of marriage, are no longer understood or respected. So that's another important aspect of of this this gospel. Also, the church refers to St. Joseph as the foster father of Jesus. Right? He fostered our Lord. He supported and cared for uh, the divine child and his mother. And Matthew 1, right, the first chapter of Matthew, begins with the genealogy of Jesus. So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, on and on. And it demonstrates how he was descended from Abraham and David and therefore was heir to the throne of Israel. Right, This lineage... It, it, this genealogy is is um, terribly important to the Jewish readers of that day, trying to understand that you know Jesus really is. This is the proof that he's the Messiah. But his lineage was genetic, of course, through his mother because she was descendant of David. But his lawful claim to the throne comes through his father, his legal father, Saint Joseph, also descendant of David, but who is referred to in Scripture as the husband. Of Mary. So although Jesus was not the biological father of, uh, Joseph rather, was not the biological father of Jesus, he was a true father to our Lord. And we're going to talk about that and more when we come back. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. We shall return after these messages. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Talking about St. Joseph and the fact that uh, although he was not our Lord's biological father, although Scripture refers to him not as the father of Jesus, but as the husband of Mary, St. Joseph was a true father to our Lord. You know, when Jesus was found in the temple, Mary says to him, your father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And we can just imagine the love and the affection between Joseph and Jesus and between Joseph and Mary. And, you know, the Irish used to refer to him as poor St. Joseph and not the least of which, (laughs) because there were only ever two perfect people in this world and St. Joseph lived with them both. But we can imagine uh, St. Joseph's pain at the poor circumstances of Jesus' birth. We can imagine the pain he must have suffered when Simeon told Mary that Jesus would be a sign that would be contradicted and that a sword would pierce her own soul. You can imagine the pain St. Joseph suffered when he had to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt to escape Herod's slaughter of the innocents. And we wonder what gave Joseph the strength to endure all those trials that were brought to him by his vocation, and it's obviously his life of prayer. That is what enabled him to be obedient to God's call. He was a just man, a man of honor, as Scripture tells us. And he had to have been a man of deep faith to fulfill his high calling. Tradition tells us that, that Joseph died before our Lord began his earthly ministry. And further, that Jesus and Mary were present with this great man of faith when he died. Which is why St. Joseph is the patron saint of a happy death. Because, well, I don't know about you, but I would like to die in the company of Jesus and Mary, like Joseph did. And it was back in 1870 that Pope Pius IX, or 9th rather, Pope Pius IX, declared St. Joseph to be patron of the universal Church. He said in the same way that he once kept unceasing holy watch over the family of Nazareth, so now does he protect and defend with his heavenly patronage the Church of Christ. There's a prayer to St. Joseph by Pope Leo XIII that says, Most beloved Father Joseph, dispel the evil of falsehood and sin. Graciously assist us from heaven in our struggle with the powers of darkness And just as once you saved the Christ child from mortal danger, so now defend God's holy church from the snares of her enemies and from all adversity. St. Joseph is a powerful intercessor. And I would like to share just one story of his patronage. And that was, um, you know, he defends the church from the snares of her enemies. And we can see that example in the life of this particular woman. This is according to the... uh, sisters of St. Joseph, that uh, in the early 1980s, a woman visited their convent at Bessillon in France, where St. Joseph had appeared. And she was expecting her fourth child, but she was very ill. And the doctors told her that she could not survive giving birth to the baby. And so if she wanted to live, her only option was to have an abortion. They even told her it was her duty to have an abortion since she already had three children to take care of. So she went to her priest and, you know, told him the whole situation. And he said for her to go to mass for nine consecutive days at that convent, St. Joseph's convent there in Bessillon. And long story short, the child was born at full term with no defects. The woman even went on to have two more children. Okay, baby was fine. Mommy was fine. This is the kind of power uh, of the intercession granted to St. Joseph. So in order to make preparations for the, for the first Christmas, St. Joseph had to submit to God's plan in faith. And as we prepare for Christmas in this, <laughs> this unprecedented season, we should turn to St. Joseph once again as our universal patron and ask him to help so that we can prepare our hearts in faith to be worthy to receive Jesus. And that's no nonsense. And thank you to Pope Francis for declaring the year of St. Joseph and bringing to mind uh, to many people who otherwise may not have turned to his intercession to turn to St. Joseph in this really, really trying time in the church and the world. Okay. Last week I went through, uh, I started uh, going through a number of essential spiritual principles that one must follow in order to have a personal ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ and ones that will enable you to live the new life in the spirit, which is the purpose of our baptism. And I stated that this list was heavily heavily influenced by popular preacher and author and my friend, Father Bill McCarthy of Our Father's House out in Connecticut. Now, the point of the list is the fact that your personal spiritual life is the most important thing in the world. And is absolutely essential for answering the universal call to holiness, which, being a true Catholic Christian, demands. Now, last week we covered the first six of uh, twelve principles. Father actually has fifteen. I've condensed things somewhat, uh, but we went over to the first six last week, namely poverty of spirit. Number two, Jesus is Lord. Number three, Thy will be done. Number four, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Number five, the kingdom of God is within you. And number six, the cleansing blood of the Lamb. And if that doesn't make sense to you, if you didn't hear last week's podcast, I encourage you to go to VMPR.org or our smartphone app or iTunes or any of the popular podcast platforms. uh, Or go to the No Nonsense Catholic playlist at uh, the VMPR YouTube channel and check it out. Uh, Today, we're going to continue now with number seven, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Our good Lord, because he's calling us to supernatural life, provides us with supernatural food. He said, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him just as the living father sent me and I have life because of the father so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me Jesus is the bread of our life he's our very sustenance every time we receive his body and blood and holy mass we become what we receive we become bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh and humility of his humility love of his love. According to St. Thomas, since it was the will of God's only begotten Son that men should share in his divinity, he assumed our nature in order that by becoming man, he might make men gods. Okay, small g. That's St. Thomas Aquinas. In other words, Jesus partook of our humanity so that we may be partakers of his divinity. We are partakers of his divine nature so as Jesus said this is my body for you this is my blood for you we live out in, in Holy Mass in the Eucharistic celebration in our lives as we say to those who we meet and love along the way this is my life for you now principle number 8 is one flock one shepherd the kingdom incarnate the kingdom that Christ came to bring to earth for all the people people of the world is his one holy catholic and apostolic church which he has left us as the pillar and foundation of the truth as paul says in first timothy three fifteen. because god is one the church is one because god is holy the church has the means and the obligation to be holy because god loves everyone and his son gave us the great commission the church is catholic or universal it's for everyone and because see Jesus said to Simon Barjona, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, the church is apostolic. Jesus prayed that we may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That's John 17, 21. <clears throat> and that there would be one flock and one shepherd. John ten sixteen. So since Jesus built his church upon Peter and his successors, to whom he gave the keys to the kingdom, we are meant to live in union with the Pope. Now, knowing the weakness of human nature, knowing our tendency towards disunity, Christ founded the new covenant upon one man, upon Peter, the rock. Uh, And in each of the previous covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, he'd done the same. We read in Isaiah 22 about David, the king of Israel, as he gives to his prime minister the keys to the earthly kingdom, along with the authority to open and shut in his name. Now, employing the same symbolism of giving the keys of the kingdom to a prime minister, Jesus gave the keys of the new kingdom to Peter. Peter alone, his prime minister and his successors, are the final authority here on earth with the power to bind and loose. Therefore, the popes of all time, together with the bishops of the world, command our obedience in matters of faith and morals. Now, of course, the Pope's power is not absolute. The pope's not the king. He's the king's steward. He has no power to introduce new doctrines or fundamentally change existing ones. But since Jesus said to the apostles and their successors, he who hears you hears me, he who rejects you rejects me, he rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Obviously, he had to make sure that the voice of the Church would be reliable, and hence the gift of infallibility. Now, of course, this gift is rarely used in an extraordinary manister, manner, but it is often present in the ordinary magisterium of the Church. So anytime the Pope, any Pope, or the bishops of the world, or individual bishops, anytime they faithfully reaffirm what's already contained in the deposit of faith, then that uh, ordinary Magisterium is, in fact, infallible. All right, principle number nine, uh, all in the family of God. Father Bill likes to ask, if you drew a picture of God's kingdom, what would it look like? Would it look like a classroom, or maybe a courtroom, a bunch of monks at prayer? Or, he asks, like a family, perhaps, gathered around a table. And he says that last is, would be closest to the truth, because what God is doing on earth through his church is creating family his way which is by covenant that of course uh, famously the topic of Scott Hahn's doctoral thesis kinship by covenant this is the covenant in a nutshell I will be your God and you will be my people my people in Hebrew that means family and Pope St. John Paul himself famously said God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude but a family since he has in himself fatherhood sonship, and the essence of the family, which is love. More on that when we come back with lots more No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about the essential principles in the spiritual life, number nine, is all in the family of God. And based on what we said before the break, the heart of God is that God is a family. A trinity of persons loving one another. That's what St. John Paul II was on about, and that's what God wants of us, whom he created in his image and likeness. Genesis 1 says, and God created man to his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God calls us to love one another with the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of his love. That's why Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And that's a new commandment, because Jesus doesn't merely ask us to love one another, or even to love your neighbor as yourself, but to love one another as I have loved you, that is with his self-giving and sacrificial love, that that greater love that no man hath than to lay down his life for his friends. And this we cannot do without his Spirit, who comes to dwell in us in the sacraments, especially baptism, which makes us the adopted sons and daughters of God, and therefore members of the Church, which is his family. Principle 10, honor thy mother. It is through Jesus, the new Adam, and Mary, the new Eve, that we gain our new life. We are now in the family of God, new creations by grace. We have God as our Father, Christ as our brother, and Mary as our mother. On the Holy Cross, Jesus gave Mary to John and through him to us all as his parting gift of love when he said, Behold your mother. And this is confirmed in the book of Revelation 12, 17, where it says, Then the dragon became angry with the woman, this Mary, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, right? Uh, Not just Jesus now, but the rest of her offspring. Uh, And they're identified those who keep God's commandments and bear witness to Jesus, okay? That's us. We are her children. And God calls uh, children to honor their fathers and mothers. Jesus asks us to honor Mary, his mother, and the mother. Other of all of those who are being saved, in a preeminent way. As Mary prophesied in the Magnificat, all generations will call me blessed. All right, number 11 now is live by the Spirit. <clears throat> Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not nor knoweth him. But you shall know him, because he shall abide with with you and shall be in you. And um, in John fourteen twenty six, the Paraclete, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, and bring all things to your mind whatsoever I shall have said to you. God the Father and the Son have sent their Spirit to enlighten our minds when we meditate, pray, to inflame our hearts as we receive the Eucharist and receive grace and love to direct and guide our lives. He says, we are open to him. The spirit within you wishes to guide you each and every step of your way to eternal union with God. He enlightens our minds as to what to do, inflames our hearts with the desire to do it, and strengthens our will to overcome obstacles to it. God did not leave us orphans. We're not alone. God leads us not into temptation, but delivers us from evil if we follow his directions. It says in the Psalms, my word shall be a lamp unto thy feet. He will guide us on our earthly pilgrimage, lest we stray into sin and danger. Scripture tells us in Isaiah 11 that the Holy Spirit brings us gifts of wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Let's take a quick look at those. Wisdom, that enables us to know God and to esteem divine things above worldly ones. Understanding helps us to comprehend our Catholic faith in the Bible and to appreciate and understand the example of the saints. Counsel is necessary to guide ourselves and others to do God's will, and it especially helps us uh, to endure and have courage. Oh, no, I'm sorry, it helps us rather to get others through spiritual and temporal problems. And that's fortitude, which is the strength that we need to endure and have courage to stand up for our faith and to suffer adversities and persecutions for the sake of God. Knowledge helps us to know God and uh, ourselves and others, as God knows. Piety. This is the gift that infuses us with the love for the faith of our fathers, to honor and to reverence um, our tradition. And number seven is fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom. We fear his just punishments for our sins, but we more so fear to displease or offend him. Hence we say in the act of contrition, um, I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell but most of all because they offend thee, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. And then St. Paul lays out the fruits of the uh, Spirit in Galatians 5. Charity, joy, peace, patience, benignity, or kindness, goodness, longanimity, which is forbearance, mildness, faith, modesty, continency, or self-control, and chastity. Everything that we catholics believe in and do has one end and that's holiness and the work of the holy spirit is to sanctify us to make us holy in the words of saint paul i say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh jesus warns us not to be lukewarm he said i am come to cast fire on the earth and what will i but that it be kindled the descent of the holy ghost was accompanied by tongues of fire There's an urgency in the service of God. As Isaiah said, they that hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall take wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So let our prayer be, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. And lastly, number 12, non nobis domine. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory this prayer from the Psalms was the motto of the Knights Templar the medieval warrior monks whose rule of life was composed by the great Saint Bernard of Clairvaux Saint Bernard by the way is the patron of candlemakers, because he was such a great light in the church and like Saint Bernard we we are like mirrors that reflect the fire of God's love as the Lord tells us you are the light of the world men do not light a candle and put it under a bushel but upon a candlestick that it may shine to all that are in the house. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What's he saying? That when you become the light of the world, others will glorify God. St. Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever else you do, do all to the glory of God. We are here on earth to give him glory, and we will spend our eternity singing Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of Thy glory. I mentioned last week that at Holy Mass we are surrounded by a heavenly chorus of saints and angels giving all the glory, the honor, the adoration, and the praise to God. Non nobis domine, non nobis, said nomini tuo da gloriam. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory. And those are the 12 essential principles, spiritual principles, and that's no nonsense sense. All right, just a few minutes left in today's program, and I'm going to go quickly to the question box, um, because I often encourage people to pray the divine office. And so a listener asked, which version of the office do you pray, traditional or the new liturgy of the hours? Well, over the years, my relationship with the office has gone through a number of transformations. I was introduced to it by a friend in a lay order that does the traditional divine office in Latin so all of the hours kind of you know, around the clock all 150 psalms uh, in a week but because they're not you know, uh, cloistered religious but laymen living in the world their younger members right, working guys have families um, are only required to play uh, lauds and vespers an option to compliment so um, morning and evening prayer and a five decade daily rosary standing in for the remaining hours which is not like uh, what lay people used to do in the middle ages now I prayed that way for some time Time, uh, using the Divinum Officium website, DivinumOfficium.com, which they have the traditional mass and the uh, divine office for every day. Uh, although I must admit that I prayed from the right-hand column in English and not in Latin. Uh, but of course, that's all the prayers for each day's laws and vespers. And at one point, um, I, I took to praying just the psalms without the other prayers from the book My Daily Psalms, which was put up by the Confraternity, the Precious Blood, and arranged according to The Hours of 1962, and is available from Amazon. But even just praying the Psalms without the additional readings was kind of a challenge time-wise, and it left most of the Psalter unprayed each week. So several years ago, I started regularly praying the Novus Ordo Liturgy of the Hours, which is the Psalter, you know, 150 Psalms arranged over four weeks. For those of you on YouTube, I'm holding up a copy of uh, the breviary that I use, which is uh, the book Shorter Christian Prayer, published by Catholic Book Publishing Company. Now it's a one-volume edition of the current liturgy of the hours, and it's simplified for lay people to use. You know, uh, and it's much easier than the complete four-volume edition. And it was drawn up precisely so that uh, so that lay people could unite themselves more closely to the daily liturgical prayer of the church, which is the point of praying the office in the first place. And it's approved for the diocese in the United States, and it's got the four-weeks altar and readings for the morning and evening of prayer, proper of the seasons, proper of the saints, night prayer, office of the dead, a hymnal, the whole bit. And I should mention that the translation of the Psalms is taken from the Grail Psalms, which was an English translation made back in the 60s, and it's the original version of the Grail Psalms, so it doesn't employ any inclusive language, any of that. And then the other biblical readings are from the New American Bible. So, you know, the the point of his question, and some people might wonder, it's like, well, you're a traditional Catholic. You go to the extraordinary form of the Mass. Why would you pray the Novus Ordo office? Well, my definition of a traditional Catholic is no longer someone who exclusively assists at the traditional Latin Mass, but simply a Catholic who can pray the act of faith and really mean it. And I've since come up with the designation no-nonsense Catholic. So call me what you will. I'm comfortable with this liturgical compromise, Uh, shall we say, since I can't practically pray the traditional divine office. And the shorter Christian prayer offers a practical way for a layman like me to pray the hours, and that puts me in union with the official daily practice of the church, as opposed to some personal arrangement of the old office, which found me either praying only a fraction of the psalms on the one hand or omitting the other prayers and readings on the other. And as a layman, praying the new liturgy of the hours just makes sense. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, so great to have you uh, along with us this week. want to mention that uh, coming up next month on the 16th of January, we have our next virtual conference, our Spiritual War Conference, God's Patriarchy or Man's Anarchy with Jess Romero and Dr. Dan Schneider. So you can go online to vmpr.com and register ahead of time for that. The only way to get the affair Spiritual Warfare Conference t-shirt is to register online, and also the registration gets you um, a copy of the, um, or or access, rather, to copies of the talks, which will, you know, they're going to be taken down off YouTube after the live uh, broadcast. So check that out, and in the meantime, looking forward to seeing you next week here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, no-nonsense Catholic. Until then, may God richly bless you and your family.